Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 24, The Great Retreat. Before we get going on this week's discussion, I want to start with just a couple of housekeeping notes. First off, I want to give you all a brief preview of what I have planned for the coming weeks. May 1915 had about 75,000 things happening at once, so I'm going to lay out how I plan on going about this. First up will be the awesome Austro-German offensive at Gorlitzi Tarnoff beginning on May 2nd. Next week, from March 9th, we'll cover Italy's entry into the war on May 23rd. In week 3, we'll swing down to the Balkans and look at the situation facing Serbia, along with the entry of Bulgaria in September. These three episodes should bring us nicely to the end of 1915 on the Eastern Theatre. But before moving on, we'll need to make another stop at the Western Front for the battles at Luz and the firing of Sir John French. Then as we did for 1914, we'll take another episode or two looking at events elsewhere, like the introduction of unrestricted submarine warfare in March 1915 and the sinking of the Lusitania on May the 7th. All of this will bring us into mid-April, and as I said, I am planning on giving an episode to the Armenian Genocide that month, since it'll mark the centenary, an opportunity we can't afford to pass up. So that's just a thumbnail sketch over the next little while. The second announcement is if you visit our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podmean.com, you'll see that I have added a donate button on the right-hand side. Now since we are all lovers of history here, you've no doubt noticed that acquiring books and sources can be pretty expensive, and over the past couple of months I've compiled a long list of books which I am just dying to bring into the show. This is some real top-notch stuff, but unfortunately, for a guy with just a part-time job, these things tend to hit the wallet a bit harder than their price indicates. So far, I've been reliant on my personal collections or what I can intercept from the local libraries, which can be taxing when you're facing a deadline. So if you have a few extra dollars just burning a hole in your wallet, you can make a one-time or repeated donation, which will help cover the costs of some of these sources and just generally go to making the show better. Hosting, sources, equipment, everything and anything. There is no limit to your donation, but I can assure you that every little bit helps. I very much enjoy doing the show and have no plans on stopping anytime soon. We still have tons to talk about, but if you want to help us out, I am now officially open to taking your money. So now that that's all out of the way, let's get back into this thing. As we talked about back in episode 22, the decision to focus German attacks in the East came about a prolonged debate among the Chiefs of Staff, with Erich von Falkenhayn arguing for action in the West, and Paul von Hindenburg and Erich von Ludendorff calling for a decisive blow against Russia in the East. In the end, Kaiser Wilhelm decided on a compromise. For 1915, German efforts would be concentrated eastward, but Falkenhayn would be given command of the central offensive. Despite the fact that none of his generals were overly happy about the Kaiser's decision, there was one individual who couldn't help but contain his excitement, the Austro-Hungarian chief of staff, Konrad von Hutzendorf. Ever since the Habsburgs marched off to war, their performance had been, well, nothing to brag about. The Serbs had beaten them back bare-knuckled, and their ill-fated spearhead into Glacia had been squashed by the Russian steamroller leaving half a million casualties, including their full-time multilingual officers, and 120,000 troops under siege at Presmissel. While Falkenhayn, Ludendorff, and Hindenburg spent the winter bickering with each other, Hutzendorf had attempted to re-establish the prestige of his forces in December by sending an army into the Carpathian Mountains, with the goal of relieving Presmissel and catching the Russians off their guard. But the Russians, riding high on their recent victories, had beaten him to the punch, and sent in an army of their own almost simultaneously. The Carpathian campaign which has popped in and out of our narrative for a few weeks now, was an unfiltered travesty for both sides. Entire units froze to death as neither were equipped for the rigors of mountainous warfare, 
Artillery shells bounced harmlessly off the thick ice, and troops were required to warm their rifles over fire pits before the bulk could be worked. With no food or water making its way to the front, conditions got so bad that numerous troops opted for suicide, either by gunshot or simply wandering away from camp to die in the wilderness. During the night, on-duty sentries were attacked by packs of wolves, and men did not dare to sleep more than 10 minutes lest risk their eyelids freezing shut. It produced no military gains whatsoever, but Hutzendorf had lost nearly 600,000 men in the mountains from December to April. So with the Carpathian, Glacian, and Serbian debacles now in their pocket, the Austro-Hungarians were in a bit of a pickle. Hutzendorf was pleasantly surprised when he learned the Germans opted for eastern action, but what came as a second, but equally unexpected development, was that Falkenhayn had agreed to a plan which Hutzendorf had personally designed. You'll recall that Falkenhayn did not care for his Austrian counterpart in the least, referring to the dual monarchy as a walking cadaver any time he could. But to his surprise, Hutzendorf would come up with a plan which, unlike everything else he had done, actually made a bit of sense. Essentially, what the plan called for was a combined Austro-German force to assemble near the Polish city of Krakow, an attack along the northern foothills of the Carpathians, between the towns of Gorlitzi and Tarnow, which straddle the banks of the River San. There is a map at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com, so after leaving your generous donation, be sure to give it a glance because things are about to get pretty crazy from here on out. Hutzendorf's chosen location was a curious one. Looking at the map there, most would agree that the best choice for an attack would be at the Polish salient, since it would allow the Central Powers to coordinate a three-pronged attack aimed at pinching it off and spilling into Russian Poland. But Hutzendorf knew full well that the Russians were in bad shape the closer they were to the Carpathian Crest. Despite their victories of November 1914, the Russian position was unstable. Men were often without rifles and had virtually no heavy artillery the latter being one of the reasons why Przemysl had held out until March. So Hutzendorf had wisely staked his claim by arguing that an attack against the weak presence in Glacia would force the Russians into a difficult decision. Either pull their troops from the Carpathians, or risk having them cut off by the oncoming assault, which would act like a buzzsaw cutting at the salient foundation. Beginning in February, Falkenhayn and Hutzendorf had quietly begun marshalling a mammoth force at Krakow, without the Russians ever being tipped off. By mid-April, eight German divisions of the newly christened 11th Army, commanded by General August von Mackensen, one of the architects of Tannenberg, plus four Austro-Hungarian divisions had arrived at the border delta. In total, this new force under Mackensen composed of nearly 100,000 men, with more reinforcements soon in transit. On the other side of the Vistula, the man in charge of the Russian 3rd Army was a Bulgarian general by the name of Rako Dmitriev. Dmitriev had actually been the commander of the Bulgarian army during the two Balkan Wars, but had volunteered to fight with Russia when his home country declared their neutrality. With the bloodletting in the Carpathians ongoing, Dmitriev had received a steady flow of reinforcements to the Glacian sector since March, growing his army to about 250,000 by late April, over a 2-to-1 advantage to Mackensen's. However, Dmitriev was known to be a bit of a know-it-all hothead among the command circles. And while there have been reports of a spike in German being spoken from the Austro-Hungarian positions, Dmitriev took no heed and made zero effort to reinforce his lines. Trenches were nothing more than foxholes, and barbed wire was left in coils. This oversight proved to be a fatal error, because Dmitriev was never going to enjoy his manpower advantage. Firstly, most of his new reinforcements were fresh conscripts, largely illiterate, who were not given proper training or equipment, and many had arrived at the front with little more than a long coat and boots, and of lucky a cap or if really lucky, a working rifle. If you've ever seen Enemy at the Gates, that World War II sniper film where the Russians all have British accents, the notion that the average Russian conscript lacking a personal weapon was true, and it was just as widespread in the First World War as the Second. 
This was the reality of the Russian army at this point. Manpower was a dime a dozen, but their war industry was in no shape to keep up. In terms of rifle production, they needed 200,000 per month, but were producing only 50,000. So it's great if you can outnumber the enemy 2 to 1, but if a quarter of your men have no rifle or bullets, well, that advantage dries up pretty quick now, doesn't it? Mackinson, on the other hand, shared no such burden, because as we already know, artillery would prove to be the breaker of armies, and that was something Mackinson had plenty of. Supplementing his troops were nearly 1,000 guns of various heavy and light calibers, compared to Dmitriev's meager 145, which also lacked substantial stockpiles. This contrast in firepower would prove to be the battering ram which would leave the Russians scrambling in retreat over the next five months. On May 2, 1915, with the French and British trained on Gallipoli, the Austro-German armies rumbled to life. For over four hours, nearly 700 guns of Mackinson's army pounded the Russian lines at Grilitsu Tarnov, and the largest artillery bombardment of the war to date. The effect this shelling had on the raw Russian conscripts was unsurprising. Stanley Washburn, a British military observer assigned to Russian forces, best illustrates the aftermath. Quote, For whole verse behind the line, I am told that the terrain was a hash of earth, mangled bodies, and fragments of exploded shells. If the statement that the Germans fired 700,000 shells in three hours is true, and it is accepted by the Russian army, one can readily realize what must have been the condition of the army occupying that line of works. Unquote. The German press reported similar horrific details. While it may be easy to dismiss these as propaganda, historians unanimously agree that the Russians stood no chance. A German press report indicates, quote, Insanity raged in the ranks of the Russians, and from all sides, hysterical cries can be heard rising above the roar of our guns, too strong for human nerves, unquote. In the May 2nd shelling, Dmitriev's 3rd Army was decimated. By May the 10th, he had lost 70,000 men killed, wounded, or missing, and another 140,000 falling into captivity. Only 40,000 were able-bodied enough to limp their way eastward. Meanwhile, Mackinson's spearhead was not slowing down, and had advanced 250 kilometers, retaking Presmasol by early June. In one month, the Central Powers had taken more ground than the French and British would win on the Western Front over the next three years. At the Stavka headquarters in western Belarus, the Grand Duke Nicholas found that the Glacian sector was now under threat of collapse. The complete devastation of Dmitriev's army had taken the legs out of the Russian position, and it was quickly decided that the area needed to be abandoned. The speed of the combined army's advance had caught them flat-footed, but even that is putting it lightly. In truth, the Germans were testing out a new tactic, which they would soon be infamous for. The flat and unfortified topography of Glacia provided the perfect staging area for Sturmtruppen, or Stormtrooper tactics. Essentially, Stormtroopers were elite soldiers, trained to quickly bypass enemy strongholds and cause chaos behind the line. The Germans demonstrated this with unmatched virtuosity during the May Offensive. As the Russians attempted to contain the stormtroopers, the heavy artillery would close the gap and then decimate the lines from behind. The inexperienced Russian conscripts stood no chance. Mackinson's personal law chronicles the effect. Quote, the enemy has been so shaken by the heavy artillery that his resistance at many points was very slight. In headlong flight, he left his defenses, throwing away rifles and cooking utensils and leaving immense quantities of infantry ammunition and dead. Unquote. Meanwhile, at his command center at Pless, Falkenhayn received a bit of news which was unwelcomed, but not unsurprising. On May the 23rd, Italy declared war on Austria-Hungary. Now we'll leave the details of what brought them in until next week, but in terms of the Gorlitzi-Tarnoff offensive, it marks an important turning point we need to flesh out. The same day as the Italian declaration, Falkenhayn ordered a halt to the advance, hoping that he could convince Tsar Nicholas to agree to peace, 
something which Hutzendorf was more than happy to agree to, because he now faced having to fight on four fronts. But with Italy now in the fold, it had given Falkenhayn an opportunity. Falkenhayn, you see, was a Bismarckian, in the sense that he was not looking to poach the Russian bear. He merely wanted to give it a hard enough smack on the nose, forcing it to retreat back to its home. But he also reserved hope that, given time, it could be coaxed back out by generous terms. Personally, Falkenhayn believed that Germany had no business fighting Russia. The two nations had always enjoyed a fairly mutual relationship, and if it hadn't been for the French, Russia and Germany could still see eye to eye. Another reason why he saw France as the central threat, again falling in with Bismarck's political thought. As we talked about before, Falkenhayn wanted to be in the West anyway, so the faster that Russia and Germany agreed to peace, the faster everything could be over with. In the days following the Italian declaration, Falkenhayn called on the Chancellor Bethlehem Holwig to set up an intermarry for peace talks. Holwig chose someone close to the Tsar, the King of Denmark, Christian X, his first cousin, and whose family had German roots. But Tsar Nicholas would hear none of it. Now, you could call Nicholas any number of names. Sergei Vita had famously remarked he was like a well-intentioned child, while numerous observers claimed he had no character at all because he basically agreed to everything and anything. He was ignorant, self-centered, and completely out of touch with reality. But you can never accuse him of being disloyal. On May the 25th, Nicholas had personally pledged his nation's commitment to the British, French, and Italians, and swore that none would attempt to reach separate peace without consent from the remaining nations. With that, the hope of a negotiated peace went up in smoke. Although the Tsar's decision to keep fighting was indeed honorable, it was hardly the most practical choice. Not only had it foolishly kept Russia in a fight it was dangerously close to losing, but eliminated any chance it had gaining a voice in a peace settlement, and when we get closer to the Russian Revolution, these factors will resurface. Meanwhile, back at the front, the advance continued to roll east. By June, Presmasil had fallen, followed by the Galatian capital city Lemberg just days after. The Russians continued to retreat, and by the end of June, the front line had been set back to the pre-war borders. With Glacia free of Russian forces, and the Tsar unwilling to call it quits, it did not take long for Falkenhayn to recognize the opportunity. If you look at the map on the homepage, the situation was now decisively in favor of the Central Powers. The Russian victories of 1914 had been reversed, and as a side effect, the bottom had fallen out of the Polish salient, leaving it easy pickings. So of course, the next logical step was to eliminate it altogether. Hutzendorf said yes, and Falkenhayn said, sure, why not? If they're not looking to talk peace, we might as well give ourselves as much space as possible. Encouraging this operation was something you'll recall from episode 22. Those eight divisions snuck from Ypres? Well, they had begun to arrive by the final week of June, and Falkenhayn had immediately dispersed them to the various armies in the east. Some went to Mackensen's 11th, others to the 12th Army in East Prussia, commanded by General Max von Gollwitz, and to the 9th Army, under Prince Leopold of Bavaria. Again, no time was wasted, and on July the 13th, the hammer fell. From the north, Galvitz's 12th Army descended from East Prussia, while the 9th attacked towards Warsaw, and Mackensen's 11th wheeled northeast in the direction of Brest-Litovsk. Within days, over 1 million German and Austro-Hungarian troops spilled into Russian Poland, supported by 5,000 artillery pieces and quick-moving cavalry. The commander of Russian forces in Poland, General Mikhail Alexiev, found he had limited options. In times past, the symbol of Tsarist rule in Poland had been a string of mighty fortresses which dotted the salient. These fortresses, located at Warsaw, Kovno, Grodno, and Brest-Litovsk, there were a few more, but whose names I won't even attempt to pronounce. The fortresses were imposing obstacles, which housed vast stockpiles of shells and mobile guns. But based on the ultra-conservative methods of Tsarist Russia, and unwillingness to adopt changing warfare, these munitions were kept safely behind the fortress walls, and were not allocated to the armies at the front. 
The argument for keeping them walled in was that in times of emergency, the fortress rings could serve as a secondary line, so it was better to have the stockpiles available if and when the time came to use them. But all of this was nullified with the speed and veracity of the German attack, which again made frequent use of stormtrooper tactic. General Alexiev understood that although the Tsar resolved to fight, doing so here would be suicide. Backed by the Grand Duke Nicholas, the Russian armies in Poland, over 1,500,000 troops, began to fall back into the interior. On August the 4th, Warsaw was given up without a fight, and just 10 days after, the German pincers closed as Mackensen met up with Galwitz near the fortress at Brest-Litovsk, now the city of Brest and Belarus. Only through some last-minute thinking by the Russian 8th Army General, Alexei Brusilov, a name worth noting, had allowed enough time for the remaining troops to escape. Brusilov had his army positioned just east of the River Son, and was able to wheel southward to delay Mackensen's advance. Meanwhile, way up in the north, soon after seizing Warsaw, Hindenburg and Ludendorff opened a new front, which although much smaller, eliminated the final escape route. With two more armies at their disposal, Hindenburg and Ludendorff attacked north of the Majorian Lakes into Lithuania, forcing the Russians to funnel southeast and abandon the key forts at Kovno and Vilna. At the Vilna Fortress, something like 1,300 guns and nearly 900,000 rounds of shells were simply handed over to the Germans. The advance reached as far as Riga, the Latvian capital, but the Germans failed to take the city because of an increasing Russian warship presence in the Gulf. By the middle of August, the salient had been completely eliminated, and there was nothing stopping the combined armies from advancing into the Russian heartland. Ludendorff wanted to crush the Russians immediately, and had proposed a daring plan where he would bring two of his armies southward and trap the retreating Russians behind the Pripet marshes. Likewise, Hutzendorf, who at the same time wanted to redeploy his armies against the Italians, pressed the Germans to keep going. But Falkenhayn had read his history a bit more closely than his two colleagues. He noticed that the Russian withdrawal from Poland was not as panicked as it was in Glacia, and that the Russians were doing the same thing they had done to Napoleon a century earlier, retreat into the vastness of the country and wait for General Winter to come take command. It was methodical, organized, and they had put up a stiffer fight in order to entice the Germans forward. In Lithuania, for example, Ludendorff had taken 50,000 casualties chasing the withdrawal, Giving credence to Falkenheim's argument was that as the Russians drew back, they destroyed bridges and burned entire fields, leaving the advancing armies nothing for subsistence. In Napoleon's day, the Tsar had ordered Moscow set ablaze to prevent it falling to the French. Falkenheim knew that by chasing the Russians into the heartland, he ran the risk of being swallowed up by its vastness, in the same way Napoleon had been, and that was something he had no intention of doing. But there was also a more practical matter. In order to feed and supply an army on a front that large, the only option was to commandeer the rail lines, which, in the interior, were limited to begin with. Complicating this already complicated task were the tracks themselves. As they are today, Russian rail lines are of a larger gauge than those in Western Europe, meaning that the wheels on a German locomotive are too narrow to fit on a Russian track. The Germans cannot commandeer eastern railways the same way they could in France and Belgium which meant that army engineers and laborers would have to lay hundreds of kilometers of new tracks in order to make this work. Falkenhayn correctly assessed that there was no chance of getting this done before the cold settled in, and he had no intention to camp his army in the east as long as the western front remained active. Although the Russian Empire had taken a severe blow, it was not defeated. From the opening attack at Kurlitsi Tarnov to their final positions along the Riga, Minsk, and Carpathian axis, the Great Retreat had forced them back 500 kilometers, roughly 310 miles, at a cost of 500,000 killed and another 976,000 becoming prisoners of war, although accurate numbers are tough to place since so many troops lack proper enlistment records. As the army fell back, whispers of treachery began to make their way in the ranks. 
Encouraged by their officers, the Russians took their frustration out on the local populations, creating a fifth column within the ranks. With an army composed of uneducated and illiterate peasants, these ideas were not difficult to fester. Jews in Poland were the easiest targets, and as the Germans entered Warsaw, they were met with cheering crowds and hailed as liberators by the locals, because for the first time in a century, Poland was no longer under the rule of the Tsars. Oh, how times would change. But for the Russians, the retreat did have a silver lining. Owing to Falkenhayn's decision not to give chase, Russia had actually improved its position by not only straightening, but shortening the line from 1,600 kilometers in January 1915 to just 965 by the summer, which had the added benefit of shortening its supply columns. Despite this, Falkenhayn was content that the Russian army was no longer a threat. But before he could move his armies back west, circumstances with the Italians and Bulgarians had opened new opportunities to exploit. But we'll get to that story over the next two weeks. In a sense, Gorlitsy Tarnoff and the subsequent retreat from Poland was the decisive action on the Eastern Front. It was the largest and most successful advance of the entire war, and the Tsar's armies were so battered, they would not again take the offensive until the summer of 1916. In Berlin, Kaiser Wilhelm held the victory. Quote, My sword has crushed the Russians. Woe to them who drew against me. Unquote. But in St. Petersburg, things were not so pleasant because Gorlitsy Tarnoff also set the stage for one of the greatest upheavals in modern history, one which would cast a shadow over the next century. To the shock of the world, Tsar Nicholas dismissed the Grand Duke as Chief of Staff, relocating him to the Caucasus. On September 5, 1915, despite no military training or experience, Tsar Nicholas, the last of his name, took personal command of the Russian army. His statement to his people was quick and short. Quote, my duty to my country, which has been entrusted to me by God, impels me today, when the enemy has penetrated into the interior of the empire, to take supreme command of active forces, and to share with my army the fatigues of war, and to safeguard with it Russian soil from the attempts of the enemy." End quote. Nicholas, the well-intentioned child, had done an honorable thing. He had brought his nation into war, and felt it was his duty to lead them through it. But it was also incredibly stupid. Ignoring protests from his advisors, he had tied the prestige of his monarch to the war effort. No longer could criticisms be deflected on ministers or generals. Blame would be at his feet alone. Soon after taking command, Nicholas left for the front, leaving the Tsarina behind in St. Petersburg. With the war going from bad to worse, and the people at home facing famine and starvation, the Tsarina became a lightning rod for public anger. Tsarina Alexandra was German-born, and had come under the influence of a certain mystic monk. Russia was losing the war, the Tsar was not in the capital, and his wife, a German-born empress, was left in the care of Rasputin, a mysterious puppet master who embodied all things evil and backwards. The final rung, leading to the Russian Revolution, was set. Next week, we are going to backtrack and look at what brought Italy into the war. Although a sought-after ally, Italy did not prove to be the difference-maker. Instead, what the Allies got were a brave army hampered by logistical breakdowns and dim-witted leadership. Despite mobilizing 900,000 soldiers, Italy had only 120 artillery pieces when they declared war, and were led by Field Marshal Luigi Cardona, a man who took punishing his own soldiers more seriously than beating the enemy. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources, Twitter, and email information if you wish to get in contact with me. Questions, comments, and suggestions are always more than welcome. If you are feeling generous and wish to help out the Great War Podcast, you can make a one-time donation by clicking the Donate button. 
be sure to give us a search on iTunes and leave a 5-star review, as that will help keep us afloat in the rankings and force me to continue working away on new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.